boundless curiosity is the number one skill for the oh, future. Oh, really? Yes. The most creative people are insatiably curious. They want to know what works and why. And so that's the skill you should seek. You should learn to be, if you're not naturally insatiably curious, then you should learn the techniques and skills involved with that and practice them so that you're acting as if you're insatiably curious, even if it's a learned, not innate characteristic. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. I think most of you know, given the fervor devoted to this topic over the last couple of years, that our place in time is perched on the cusp of a massive wave of technological unemployment and reemployment, a kind of phase transition between the third and fourth industrial revolutions is how people often describe it. And with this influx of data and machine intelligence and new telecommunication collaboration strategies, what we're used to as human labor is being powerfully transformed and often in ways that are as alienating for some as they are empowering for others. This is really nothing new when it comes to massive technological regime changes, but to be living through something akin to the advent of agriculture, as this transition is so frequently described, well, folks, agriculture was not a universally agreed upon wonderful positive progress kind of development i mean the the evidence archaeologically is that people suffered in this transition at least in what we think of as western agriculture you know plowing the land etc we were less well nourished than we were before for quite a while before things settled into the new configuration and I think this is obvious to anyone who works in media or publishing or entertainment. I mean, those tend to be the the first areas that are transformed by new technologies. And I, I was just talking today with a friend about how when I was 21, all the way back in the dawn age of 2005, uh, I was starting as a professional musician and hardlining it about how music should be free and musicians could make all their money from touring and it's not going to be a problem. But of course, you can't scale touring infinitely in the same way that you can scale free digital downloads. In fact, neither can you scale human attention in the way that you can scale the cornucopia that is what in 2005 was still a fantasy, you know, Spotify, Tidal, all of these streaming online platforms. So something like this is happening now for the rest of the workspace and in the next few years, in some cases, as we get into with respect to trucking and uh, decades as more and more of the creative and knowledge work that we escaped to from the rising tides of automation themselves are subsumed into the ravenous maw of the all-metabolizing evolutionary agenda that author Kevin Kelly calls the technium. 
Well, it seems as though human beings will be crowded on an ever smaller island of capacity. And in fact, you know, one of the big themes of this show is to encourage and emphasize what poet John Keats many years ago called negative capability, not knowing, comfort with ambiguity, tolerance of paradox. Negative capability is one of the skills that today's guest, futurist Stowe Boyd, has emphasized in his Work Futures blog, a fantastic newsletter that I subscribe to and highly recommend. This show tends to spin off into the abstract or Empyrean, so I'm really glad to offer an episode this week where we get into the mundane brick-and-mortar reality of what life might be like in the years to come and how we are seeing the business world and the world of human labor mutating in an adaptation to the accelerating times we live in. So it's a great pleasure to have Stowe on here, even though this interview is, as I'm sure you'll notice, it points throughout, just about a year old. But that's the funny thing about the great acceleration is that (laughs) from within it, sometimes it's just excruciatingly long. Anyway, huge thanks and huge shout out to this week's new Patreon supporters, Dane Stanley, Bird Patron, and Andrew Coins. All of you are helping me take baby steps towards my goal of 200 Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where... This week on Thursday night, January 31st, we will be having our first group discussion call for the sci-fi book club that we just started. If you have read or can in the next few days read Blindsight by Peter Watts, which is an absolutely excellent and unique, weird sort of sci-fi horror combination about first contact in an age of augmented human beings and what it is to encounter the truly other in a very sophisticated milieu of cognitive neuroscience. Well, join us, please. And if you don't get it by Thursday, we're going to record the two-hour Zoom call and we'll be available to Patreon supporters after the fact. We're going to start doing this occasionally every two or three months. Uh, So please hop on in and, and Have a more intimate and participatory experience with the Future Fossils community, if you please. There are also a ton of exclusives uh, on that site, including secret episodes and so on. So help a brother out. I'm about to have a kid. If you love this show and you have a few bucks every month to spare, you know where to put it. And if you don't, obviously, reviewing the show on iTunes or wherever you listen is always extremely helpful and helps us get into the ears and minds of the people who will benefit the most. Well, that's all for now. I've got some great episodes coming up for you in the weeks to come. But first, this fabulous and real conversation with Stowe Boyd of the Work Futures blog. Thank you and enjoy. Such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining. Well, it's great to be here. Yeah. So uh, we were just talking about the the challenges of being an independent 
publisher in this time and how it feels like I, I, I'm, I'm often reflecting on the line from Peter Gabriel's song, Don't Give Up. Where he's talk, it's which is you know based on the the Great Depression and the Dust Dust Bowl America, and he says you know, moved on to another town, tried hard to settle down. For every job, so many men, so many men, no one needs. And then there's this there's this sense in which, in whatever way, we're recapitulating this tension in our age, in our year, that you know every time you get comfortable somewhere it's like myspace you know you've got your like 80 million myspace followers you've html coded your whole thing and this is i'm speaking from my own personal trauma then then <laughs> then then rupert murdoch comes in and buys myspace and they decide to wipe the html individual coding off everybody's page looks the same everybody's suddenly it's a it's a ghost town and yeah. you've got to move to Facebook, and then Facebook tweaks the thumb screws and does their thing, and then suddenly that's not looking so great anymore. And there's <laughs> this there's this sense of like not just planned obsolescence of devices, but a sense of not being able to settle anywhere, having to constantly relocate your your uh, your stuff, leaving merit and followers and people behind when email's no longer the thing and Slack is the thing. Right. So, yeah. I mean, how did you, I guess, I guess the question is, how did, first of all, how did you decide to, to turn into the, the swerve here and, and emphasize the, the metamorphic work environment as a career? And then, you know, how are you, uh, how are you making sense of all of this change and tumult? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the experience that you related of, you know, MySpace, et cetera, uh, you know, I have a parallel story to tell. You know, I started in 99 on a platform called convey.com, which was an e-zine because the word blogging didn't exist yet. Or I guess we were starting to use the word weblog, <laughs> but blog, you know, the short version uh, in 99 didn't happen. But I went, you know, I was writing at the time about social tools. In fact, I coined the term social tools in 99 and started writing about the way that the web was going to change culture, particularly those people to begin with who are, you know, interested in and involved in it. But somewhere along there, you know, convey.com got shut off. Like literally it was turned off one day when the investors failed to give them the next chunk of money they needed. And I lost all my content. That was kind of a heartbreak. But um, uh, you can still see it on the Wayback Machine. It's kind of it was called Message from Edge City. Um, anyway, but I moved to Blogger, and then you know Blogger, you know, came and you know, in a sense, never evolved after Ev Williams left and sold it. And then I went to TypePad, you know, actually movable type briefly, and then TypePad, the same company, two different platforms. Then I experimented with, uh, you know, various things. I had, a, you know, WordPress, but I really made a transition to Tumblr. And actually, I'm still on Tumblr. I've been on Tumblr ever since. That must have been 20, 2006 or something, you know. So I've got, like, a, a huge history of stuff on Tumblr. And I never actually stopped on Tumblr. I still am on Tumblr. I have 165,000 followers there or something. I don't know how many are active and how many are just porno bots, but <laughs> I mean, it's a very active space for me. I mean, there's people that follow my stuff actively and they're talking to me every day and so on. Um, but then, of course, I did try the migration to Medium. You know, I created a publication called Work Futures, you know, focusing on my interest in the future of work. And I 
slowly over time built up like 25 contributors, lots of content, you know, lots of uh, interest, lots of followers. It, it was to begin with a very, you know, interesting community because at first there was just a lot of, you know, people who were really the exponents of ideas as opposed to the consumers of them. And it was very much, um, you know, sort of a, had a, you know, a, the insiders kind of feeling at first, which is what I felt, you know, in a lot of these other places in the old days, you know, when, when, when there were only 500 bloggers in the world, it felt like a small community and everyone knew each other. And at first at medium, you sort of had some of that sense. Of course it grew very fast and, and, and they have zigzags, which you and I talked about it earlier that, um, you know, they tantalized a bunch of us saying they were going to, you know, build an ad network and then they pivoted away from that. And then they've built this membership model um, and they're actually deprecating the notion of publications and, uh, you know, independent branding of something with a bunch of people that write and have their own sort of internal leaderboard or internal stats or whatever doesn't really interest uh, Ev Williams and the people behind Medium anymore. So, I, like a lot of people now, I'm making the migration to, uh, you know, uh, you know, patrons sponsored, supported, you know, behind a firewall, behind a paywall kind of communities, because, you know, act, you know, as a writer, you know, writing for somebody, you know, who's willing to pay you if you're great and have a great reputation, you know, a few hundred dollars for a thousand word essay, it's, you know, it's uh, it's not a way you can really make a living unless you're literally spending every minute of your day writing. You got to do something else, and um, you know, it's sort of in parallel with the way the music industry's changed, right? So, um, you can't live on uh, ad advertising. You've got to do something else, and sort of direct sponsorship of a community of people that really care about what you're doing, I think, is the transition we're we're looking, in a sense, returning to because. After all, when everybody said the web was a bunch of fringe lunatics and it'll never really have an impact on mass media, I mean, they were wrong. But the point is, at that time, the people that actually got a lot out of it um, were getting it because of personal connections to people that wanted to read their stuff. And it was rel relatively small scale. So um, I think we're returning to that. And... You know, the idea that you could have a few thousand people who are paying you a small amount of money every month, but it's enough that it makes it all worthwhile for you to do it. And that is a springboard to other things that you're doing, you know, like writing a book or public speaking or, you know, doing research for people, clients, because, you know, my background is research originally. So I'm not a journalist per se, right? I'm, I'm a researcher who has used writing as the obvious vehicle to, you know, put myself on in front of people. But I, I think this change of scale is the thing that's kind of interesting, but we're returning to human scale instead of mass scale um, because uh, advertising in this new world where, you know, it's, it's actually measurable, you know, the people that want to pay for advertising aren't willing to pay enough because there's just too much going on at the large scale is too much noise. So you have to change the scale to some narrow scope where you can be deep and attract 
a community of people that really care enough about what you're doing, how you do it, what your ideas are, what how your you know voice is true or not. Those are things that now are important again. Yeah, it seems if I'm to think of it in ecological terms, it seems as though we were for decades or centuries largely in sort of a, a desert of cultural diversity, at least with respect to the, the relative horizon of an individual human life. You know, everyone you meet for your entire life is going to believe the same things by and large. You know, the people that don't are rejected. They're put outside the city wall and left to fend for themselves or whatever. Now we live in a world where the scope of commerce and the scope of the exchange of ideas that rides on commerce has made it so it feels like we've moved from a desert into a rainforest. Like suddenly everywhere we look around us is all of this additional diversity. But like the difference between a desert and a rainforest is your visibility, you know, being able to look 50 or a hundred miles away from the top of a Mesa in New Mexico versus being able to see like maybe five feet away from you. It's somewhere in the Amazon. And, and so it, you know, maybe like we're, we have exchanged the access, the availability of stuff within arm's reach, you know, and, and the diversity of ideas and resources within, you know, like at our disposal for our ability to see the long range and like our, our ability to plot a course, you know, and say like that's, that's miles out, you know, but I'm going to see, I see it and I'm going to, I'm going to walk there. Yeah, I think I think I think that what you're saying is sort of a distant analogy to the 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 deep versus shallow. I mean, the narrow and deep versus shallow and broad thing that I talk about a lot. And I, you know, it's other people have talked about this. Clay Shirky, for example, used to say when you know you put everything together, then you know only the stuff that's bland, you know, is what you'll encounter because there's mo- so many people want bland, and most people don't want stuff that is sort of at the edges, the extreme stuff. But the world has changed so significantly in the, the past 10 years uh, for any number of reasons. I don't even want to get into, in fact, the causes, but just the effects in, in my world. Um, today, for example, very pragmatically, there's probably three or 400 relatively interesting things that are published that are potentially interesting to me as a a work futurist, somebody that's really focused on the future of work and all of its ramifications, and the few, let's say the 10, 15, 20,000, who, who knows what the number is, people out there that really care about this deeply enough who would like to um, get access to the top things in that list every day. And so the problem is they all have jobs. They can't they can't find them all. They, can, they don't have the time to read them all. And so all of a sudden, you know, the, the role of a curator, somebody who reads not necessarily 400, but reads 100 maybe, um, that person's very helpful. And, uh, you know, that activity is something that could be maybe in the not-too-distant future, you know, somehow handled by algorithms or AI. But at the moment, it isn't. And, of course, in particular, the the added value of, saying not only here's the 10 things you might want to read today, but here's why. And here's an excerpt 
that demonstrates the value of this thing, right? And so if you don't have time to actually read it, you're aware that it existed and went by your view screen, at least you know that it's there. Maybe you put it in your pocket or whatever so you can read it on the weekend or listen when you're standing in line at the bank. Um, but uh, that has high value. It has a value anyway. Uh, so I think that's that's charming because that was what, once again, that was the kind of things that people were doing for each other, that curatorial notion of I have a social network of people and the important stuff in the world will find its way to me just because of the people I choose to follow, right? And that notion prior to Facebook <laughs> and today's Twitter, where it's there's so much and so little discernment and suspect algorithms that are deciding based <laughs> on who knows what to stick stuff in front of you, you know, we've kind of lost the, the human dimension um, and instead have gone into, I don't even know exactly how to characterize it, but the modern era of so-called social networking tools that are increasingly not driven by social concerns. It's, it's, it's driven by sort of mechanical or um, advertising-based thinking, um, you know, commercial kind of thinking as opposed to social. So they're really commercial networks now. Yeah. Yeah. I've had to be rather aggressive in my newsfeed management on Facebook in the last year, like really taking the responsibility to say, I'm going to see these people first. And then I'm, you know, just like aggressively unfollow oh, yeah. all the other stuff. I, I really don't go to Facebook except when somebody sends me a message or something with the exception of one thing, which is completely orthogonal, you know, completely out of scope with all the other things I do. Uh, my city in New York, a relatively small town, uh, city, you know, legally, but it's really town sized, you know, 20,000 people here on the Hudson River, uh, 65 miles north of New York City. The way the best way to keep in touch with what's going on in Beacon is Facebook. Um, but it's a relatively small community, right? So, you know, it's not all of Beacon, there's only a few hundred people that participate. Um, but it is the, actually the best and most authoritative way. But that's not quite the same as getting involved with national politics or, you know, other, you know, sort of large scope things where you're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, you can just get, you know, you can drown in it. I, I don't use Facebook for that at all. And I'm kind of judicious about even how I use Twitter because I, while I follow a lot of people, I, I don't listen to most of them. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, in other words, it's not the person I'm listening to. It's like what I'm looking to find is what floats to the top. Right. Right. It's a different pattern. And then there's a handful, you know, a couple of hundred people that I, I you know, sort of diligently keep in touch with through Twitter. And we, you know, very commonly I'm sending them direct messages and so on. But that's, again, it's, it becomes small scope. And, you know, you're talking about a few hundred people. It's, you know, it's a completely different thing. And, and so I think there's a, I mean, it's, it's intriguing, but it's also my day-to-day -day reality, right? I mean, I'm not thinking about it just intellectually. What does this mean for other people? It's really, you know, practically, how do I actually do what I'm trying to do every day using these things as resources, tools, crowbars to get, you know, lift things up and look underneath and find out what's going on. Yeah, you know, it was uh, Doug Rushkoff's book, Present Shock, that really cemented for me. I bring it up all the time because he talks about that 
email can scale infinitely. An infinite number of people can send you email. You can't yeah. read an infinite number infinite of emails. Number of emails. Yeah, yeah. So this this whole thing about reconciling the superpowers of our digital technologies with the real lim- organic limitations of our evolved bodies. Our time, yeah, yeah. Our time. Our ability to conceptualize 187 dimensions of, you know, personal interaction. We just can't do it, you know. So, yeah, we're bounded. So we have to find a bounded way. So in what other ways do you see this? uh, I mean, it's almost see it as like a, a repentant move on part of humanity to be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not quite to the transhuman, like Uber mensch, the like minority report thing of, you know, he's sitting there with managing 50,000 gestural interfaces at the same time. And then people actually set these interfaces up. I think I actually, I think you mentioned this in one of, in one of your pieces where it's like, you can't, I might have been something else reading at the same time, but it's like this this issue of like it actually turns out you don't want to hold your arms out in front of you all day. You're not a a forklift, you know. You're right. a human being, <laughs> and you can't sit there. You know, maybe as if you're a professional poker player, you can sit in front of seventeen screens simultaneously. But so like, there's all these ways that there's like a humbling and a, a like a reconsideration of what it actually means to be a working human being in this process and like how are you seeing like what are some of the other ways that you're seeing the human scale return to work well actually you know that turns out to be a, a, a central theme in my you know my work over the past you know decade which is you know the analysis of why it is that certain things certain tools certain practices work and do not work why is it, for example, we had a large-scale defection from the so-called work management, work media platforms, you know, the yammers of the world, the jives of the world that uh, allowed people to work out loud, so-called, inside of corporations. And, but people, their actual adoption was relatively low in most places, and relatively quickly, as soon as the Slack generation of, you know, hip chat before them and then Slack with, you know, its work chat model, um, you know, it was a huge defection, enormous. Uh, and so, for example, the value of something like Yammer as a product or Jive as a product has dropped precipitously in just a few years as people move to other other models, particularly WorkChat, but not just WorkChat. People also moved to uh, task management platforms that were really focused on, you know, shared tasks, uh, you know, uh, you know, the timeline project management oriented thinking um, as opposed to just talking. And the point I'm making is that was motivated by social scale. All right. So the model of those earlier work media tools, Yammer and Jive and so on, really organized around sort of departmental level scale, hundreds of people or dozens of people who are communicating, maybe broken up into different threads and so on, but it was a follower model and you were following lots of stuff, lots of people. Um, and there was a lot of talk, but not, not very structured talk. You know, there's no tasks in Yammer. And I asked them about that once. I said, you know, I really, I think tasks are a for, first place object in the world of work. And they say, well, we thought about that. We decided not to put in tasks because we didn't think it would be fun. <laughs> and I said, excuse me? Fun? Yeah, okay, yes. I like fun as much as the next guy, but I really want to know 
when somebody asked me to do something and I agree to do it, I would like to have a task with a deadline. And here's a, <laughs> a thread of comments about, you know, the negotiation we had about what, what's the scope of my work. And so anyway, the transition to work chat isn't one just because they had a nice design and it was friendlier and all the other stuff that, you know, Stuart Butterfield talked about at the beginning, why he thought they won. It was really a movement to small group dynamics. So the, the thing was built around the notion of, you know, chat rooms that were implicitly organized around small teams. That is, you know, nine, 10, 12 upper limit. And as soon as, in fact, people started to take the old practices that they had learned in things like Yammer and tried to use them in Slack, then people started to complain about Slack's you know, overload, I can't keep up with everything. And, you know, all these tourists are coming into my chat. You know, the guys from marketing are coming into our engineering chat rooms and asking us all kinds of questions all the time. So they had to create secret, you know, side <laughs> projects where the marketing guys wouldn't come. Anyway, so that was a problem, you know, mismatch of the way that the, the technology implicitly was described or de developed or designed and implemented uh, and, and coming into conflict with, uh, you know, the social dynamics of people who really want to, you know, have visibility into what everyone's doing, but actually having visibility into what me and my friends are doing in our work group is none of your goddamn business. Get out of here. <laughs> right. um, it's, it's like the so, amoeba. The, um, the amoeba can only get so big and then you need a multicellular organism. And it's almost like, you know, the marketing yeah, guys right, right, bumping into the engineering room is like, it's like an internal hemorrhage. You know? it's, like, it's, like, uh, it's, like, it's like living in Bar Harbor, Maine now where the, tr the cruise ships come in and they, the cruise ship puts down their plank and 6,000 people hit every restaurant in town and <laughs> nobody gets to eat, right? The locals can't go to restaurants because they're going to encounter all these pissed off tourists off the boats. And there's too many of them. The restaurants are, uh, you know, not capable of prov producing all that food. And so going to Bar Harbor Maine now sucks or going to Venice, Italy sucks because, it's just completely dominated by tourists. It's a social scale problem, or in that case, it's just a scale problem. In the case of, you know, the world of work, you know, we now understand better that, you know, people have to spend a relatively significant amount of their time. If they're individual creative contributors, they have to spend a reasonable amount of their time on their own doing their work. Then a grudging amount of time at the next level of scale with small work groups that they're collaborating with talking about the work no more than necessary and avoiding to the extent possible <laughs> the intrusions of people outside of that group and minimizing that you know so for example the classic things like avoiding going to stupid meetings that really don't need you to be in the room to get your time back or avoiding you know, pointless emails that you really shouldn't get at all. You know, these are all the social scale problems ultimately. And I'm glad to say that a lot of modern research about, you know, human cognitive limits, uh, how, t you know, teams are effective or not effective is having an impact, you know, and it's, it's factually based. It's not just, this is the way we've always done it. People are actually 
doing research or understanding this or, you know, at least thinking about the social questions when they're, you know, contemplating how they should get work done. So in in line with that, also, it would seem like there is a there's and this is this is frequently discussed. There's the the scale of information input output and you, you, you touched this a little bit earlier but it, it kind of you use it as one of your refrains i've noticed in your work this critique of the open office plan where everyone can sort of engage everyone else and it's it's almost like being online where you're simultaneously exposed to news from from everywhere and how distracting right. and disorienting that is and how it's like re- limiting that, you know, like closing that valve seems like a very important part of this. Well, yeah, the carried to its logical conclusion, there's a there's a school of thought that talks about what it uh, what uh, you know sort of comes from architectural work, and, and it's called anywhereism. And, and so the 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 horrible sameness of the places that we wind up working nowadays. You know, you'll work to a co working place, or your company has adopted a hoteling model where you don't have a permanent desk and so on. And so you go there and work for, you know, the day or a week or whatever. And when you leave, it's as if you were never there in the first place because there is no indication of it. There's no potted plant. There's no photo of your friend. There's the, the drawer doesn't have a dirty pair of sweat socks in it, but it's also understandably transient. So you're not, you know, someone can't depend on going to some particular desk in some corner of the office to find you because, you know, that you only you were only there for, you know, one week working on that one project or whatever. So there's there's that. But, you know, and so that's sort of the, the transitoriness of anywhereism that, you know, it's as if you were never there, even though you were. Um, but if you talk if you think about it, just sort of in productivity terms, it's clear that for a really large number of people, even people that aren't introverts, um, even extroverts who are trying to get work done find the open workspace, unless it's really well designed and really well handled, they find it immensely uh, frustrating because, you know, you don't, ne- don't necessarily want to wear your headphones and listen to music all the time. Or like in my case, when I'm in some place like that, especially because it's so unusual for me. I have to put my headphones on and put on noisily or something to listen to like ocean waves or whatever to block it all out. Or strangely enough to put on the sound. So it sounds like I'm in a cafe with people talking, but it's carefully designed. So you can't make out words, right? It's just, you know, it's like sim talk or something. Um, And so people have adopted this model, right? So the headphones are the new wall because you don't have walls anymore. Um, And of course, in that space, you also take away all the affordances that um, people can use to increase things like their productivity or their creativity. So, for example, um, you know, if you want to be more creative, you turn the lights down. So I keep my office incredibly dark. In fact, it's so dark in here. My wife complains that, you know, the plants die. They literally die. <laughs> I have these drapes and they're closed during the daytime because, you know, you are more creative if you have high ceilings. And dark. <laughs> and so if you take all that away, which is typically what you have in an open office, it's relatively bright. The ceilings aren't usually very high, but you don't have any control on it. You can't say, I want it warmer in here or, 
I want to turn these lights off and have one, you know, reading light with an incandescent bulb. Thank you very much over here. Or <laughs> you, you're, that's all taken away from you. It's, it's, you're, you're plunked into anywhere. And, um, you know, you can't, you know, <laughs> some, of these, some of these offices, they have phony thermostats that don't do anything. So people feel good because they can go over and turn it up or turn it down. But it's not actually connected to anything. <laughs> Most of my it's friends like, would say that's like, the, like vote. the door button, the dur- door button in elevators and hotels. Uh-huh. You know where you press the button. It eighty percent of them are not connected. <laughs> yeah, in this in this space, I want to I want to pivot a little bit because I feel like s- some of the the stuff I found most fascinating in your writing is <sighs> about the new work skills that are emerging in these new spaces and i mean it's it's not a it's not a clear one-to-one cause and effect thing of the the situation that you've just described and the sort of adaptive faculties that are emerging in this area but you wrote a really cool piece about 10 work skills for the post-normal era yep and how how a lot of people are sort of talking about the work skills that were necessary a decade ago and projecting them forward erroneously and that you think that there's a whole different world coming into shape and a whole different person that needs to fit in it. And I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, that was a, that was a interesting post. And, and actually it's the most single successful post I ever wrote on medium um, in terms of the number of people that commented and so on. I've got a sad story to tell you about that too. Uh, But the, um, the original uh, thing was a friend of mine, Diane Hinchcliffe, um, had posted a list that he had gotten from the World Economic Forum. Some researchers there were doing research on the top 10 skills, and they were contrasting the top 10 skills that they or somebody else at the World Economic Forum had come up with in 15, and they were saying, this is what it's going to be in 20. And it was amazingly unchanged, I mean, slightly changed. But even so, uh, the ones in 2020 didn't seem like you know, that new or, you know, some kind of breakthrough, like complex problem solving was their number one skill or creativity. But could you please qualify that a little bit? And so I said, (laughs) this just does not jump out at me and say 2020. So I, I went through um, the exercise of looking back at a, you know, dozens of posts I had written about skills, different kinds of things that I believed were critically important, or I had derived from other people's writing, like Laszlo Bach at Google, who had said, you know, the skills that they had uh, determined um, that they were going to look for in job candidates because they actually correlated with success at Google, right? As opposed to the stuff they used to do, where they would ask all those stupid you know, sort of IQ tests, like how many ping pong balls fit in a school bus. They, they dropped all of that stuff when they actually started measuring whether answering those questions actually meant that you were going to be good at your job at Google. And they realized it didn't matter. Like they also learned that it didn't matter if you went to an Ivy League school or not. So they stopped worrying about that as much as they had. And so I came up with this list and organized it, you know, by my own determination of what was going to be you know, the order of these things. And, um, and they're really very different than the World Economic Forum. So I said, the number one skill really driven by people like Bach and uh, other companies that are have done a relatively good job now in, in the recent years of 
you know, looking for certain skills and they actually do predict the people's likely trajectory at, at the companies. So boundless curiosity is the number one skill. For oh, the few. really? Yes. The most creative people are insatiably curious. They want to know what works and why. And so that's the skill you should seek. You should learn to be, if you're not naturally insatiably curious, then you should learn the techniques and skills involved with that and practice them so that you're acting as if you're insatiably curious, even if it's a learned, not innate characteristic. So, and, and there's a list obviously of more. Yeah. People can go check that out. But so, so you feel that those, those skills beyond it, just being scientifically based on observation, do you feel that, you know, like boundless curiosity for me, for example, seems specifically prescriptive against the opposite circuit, which is this like fear and anxiety. So, you know, or, 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 or deciding that I went to college and I'm done. Right. And now I don't have to be curious. I just have to punch the clock and use the things I already know how to do or use the understanding I have the world and not really spend a reasonable amount of my time trying to change it and improve it. Right. Um, you know, so there are some, there are some people that, uh, you know, you know, they discover that you know, there's something called a flying squirrel and they say, do they really fly? And they'll go look into it, right? Now, does that have any applicability to their job? Well, not necessarily immediately, but if in fact, you know, you are that sort of person, you will stumble across things that give you insight to the world in a different way. And yes, flying squirrels may be a bad example, but maybe not, because by studying something about flying squirrels, you find something about the evolution of flying mammals, for example, that you didn't know. And that leads you to a new insight that actually helps you in the evolution of your product line or something. Mm. But um, the other, well, I mean, for example, today I was reading something and it's, you know, con another confirmation. It's somebody, a guy, Bill Taylor, who was the co-founder of Fast Company Magazine, wrote a piece in Harvard Business Review quite recently. I think it just was published last month. And um, so he was talking about four styles of leadership that are really um, useful today, as opposed to the way people might have been a leader in the past. And the number one that he came up with, the one they thought was most important, was the leader as a learning zealot, uh -huh. that he's constantly spending his or her time helping the people they work with to learn more, to expand their intellectual horizons. And they inculcate a culture where the pursuit of learning is understood to be central, not secondary to, you know, spending your time walking around with a stopwatch. And so I, you know, it, you I am constantly coming up with other, you know, hardworking intellectually interesting people who are coming up with very similar observations about what is necessary to, you know, to, to move forward, improve in a world that's changing as quickly as it is. And, and obviously learning curiosity, this nexus of a bunch of these obviously interconnected uh, and creativity is part of this, all these interconnected threads that are sort of, mutually supporting and define 
uh, the character of people that are going to succeed in a world like we live in, where it's changing so quickly. Yeah, one part of that change seems to be in, like I was saying earlier, like that that movement from sort of uh, a regionally or ethnically bounded sense of identity to this, you know, larger global identity, and that that is multiple geographically contiguous or overlapping belief systems, or ideologies, economic setups, or whatever. They're occupying the same spaces, but but like sort of different noetic spaces and so Mm -hmm. we've got we've got all of that and so you know one of the things that i've been thinking about just on a sort of more like uh trippy science fiction kind of view of it was the the radical increase in identity tolerance that people will have to exhibit working in a place where where their colleagues have you know, genetically modified neural architectures or gills <laughs> or whatever, you know, there's like the future workplace where you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're dealing with like the Borg, you know, and like you have where, you know, you're required to use transcranial stimulation to remain in a flow state while you're at the desk because they don't want, a, you know, Facebook attrition or whatever. And so through economic exigency, you end up in these situations, uh, neighboring with, you know, entities that you would have regarded as the feared other. Well, the the most obvious observation there, and it lines up with the second of my 10 skills is that people are going to have to learn how to work with, to dance with the robots, as I say. Uh Aha. So this is the skill of freestyling. You have to figure out how to incorporate AI into the work you do and get along with them and figure out how to collaborate with them. And I use the term freestyling because um, there's a form of chess called freestyle chess. And it's, um, it's, it's, it follows the same rules as chess, but it, it relaxes the tournament limitations. And it says you can have a team of people that are playing together instead of you having to play by yourself And you can do anything you want to decide how to take your next move. You can call your cousin on the phone. You can run simultaneously three chess programs and have chess books open and so on. And it turns out that the people are best who are best at freestyle chess do, in fact, use several chess programs at the same time. Interestingly enough, they are not the strongest chess players in the world. They are the best freestyle chess players in the world. And they typically, if all of their chess programs say, take this move, they'll take it. But they only get involved when their chess programs disagree with each other. Right. Uh So they step in at that point and say, well, in circumstances like this, my experience has been that chess game number one does a better job of this than, than, uh, the other two. So even though the other two are, you know, would be voting against it, I still think we should go with this and so on. Um, so the, the, just the general notion of freestyle, take it out of the context of chess playing because things in the world of work or our lives are much more complicated than the bounded board, which is only, you know, 10 to the six moves or something. It's going to be the case that we're going to live in a world with narrow and deeply focused AIs that really know how to do certain things, but not everything. 
And we as human beings are going to work in teams with these things where it might be six people and three AIs working on a project together, not too long in the future. You know, uh, Blackstone, the uh, largest hedge fund in the world now has $37 billion being managed by AIs. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they gave it to the AIs because they, they tracked it, AB tested it, and the AIs were doing better predictions of, you know, the so-called smart beta, 187 variables that are mutually interdependent. Into um, they did a better job of juggling all that than their, you know, quants with 30 years experience and so on. So they are still have human advisors involved, but, you know, the recommended moves are coming from a couple of AIs and then the advisors only step in if they disagree. So I think that's fascinating. Um, so that's obviously a central skill. People have to be actively attempting to experiment with that and figure out how to make it work. Uh, and we're right at the front frontier of all that. So it's a very early stage. And I think closely tied to that is this notion of being a deep generalist, another uh, of the, the skills. You know, generalists can find connections between things that specialists won't see. And that's increasingly important for a world that's changing and, and things are changing at differential rates of speed. And you have different innovations going on in different places. And so the people who are generalists, the ones that add is the bridges that bring something from one area to the other. You know, they act as the, the, the connection that jumps over a gap between potentially closed communities. And companies really need as much of that as they can get. Even narrowly focused companies need that. So in a way, like put it in sort of a historical lens, it seems like we get these trends where at one time it was only the Pharaoh that was like a person in the, that society and everyone else was just working for the Pharaoh. Yeah. And then you get, you know, that. Just yeah, the bronze. Yeah. That pyramid crumbles and is restructured and you know well, becomes, I don't, I don't, don't go too fast well, because well, there, there's still a lot of the bronze age and how oh, quite a bit quite a bit but you know, companies yeah well but that's just it is that like you get one corporation and it's egypt and then suddenly you get a bunch of tiny pyramids let's say and that's that resembles whatever we're shooting for in the 1700s that trend seems to be with the continued evolution and, and uh, saturation of AI assistance in the workplace. It seems like the cognitive skills, the faculties that were once sort of the exclusive province of C-suite are now being the things that, that like individuals have to know how to manage a large group, but it's actually just like software. That is that you're sending, you're delegating to particular tasks. So you have to think like a CEO, but you're, you're actually at the bottom rung of that working group or whatever, and just managing a fleet of, you know, if you're in the military, I guess, like, you know, autonomous guns or whatever, but you're the guy that's sitting there going, okay, uh, no, I'm going to veto that decision to fire. Right. And so there's a sense that leadership skills and, and that kind of uh, orbital view of things you're the one sitting on the die now. And so in a weird way, even as we become subjugated 
to, you know, there's a sense in which people feel like they're losing agency or authority in this technological embeddedness. Mm -hmm. But in another way, it feels like we're actually being deputized to step up and do a new level of like sovereignty or, or like a personal agency and authority compared to what we're used to. And in fact, um, uh, the number three skill is emergent leadership. This is the term, uh, that I think once again came from Laszlo Bach and his group, which is they wanted to, it's a skill they look for. It's people who are willing, who don't typify themselves as managers, right? They typify themselves as practitioners in some domain of knowledge and so on, but they have the skills so they can relatively adroitly take on a leadership role as is necessary by circumstance, and then they're willing to later on step back to being an individual contributor and you know doing other things. They don't feel the need to define their identity as a, a manager with people, quote unquote, reporting to them and that they you know tell them what to do or guide them, control them, whatever, uh, exhort the team to do well or whatever. Their focus as an emergent leader is to help the resolution of a set of problems that are perceived as impeding progress, development, getting the product out the door, delivering value to the client, whatever. But they don't, they don't see it as like a career. Their career is still software engineer or creative director, right? You know, of the directing the creativity of a you know of a marketing group not creative director in the sense i've got 17 people working for me and so that's really a fascinating shift and it it comes back to a bunch of the things you're talking about which is the notion that uh, in a in a world in which um, people are demanding higher degrees of autonomy then the notion of what a manager manages is different. You're not managing people. You're taking a, a role in helping to come up with solutions to problems that are stopping a group of people being effective at what they're trying to accomplish. And that's that's different. And so maybe what you're doing that because the circumstance involved requires a deep generalist, right? And you are one. And so that makes sense. Or maybe it's a circumstance where it really requires somebody with deep domain knowledge of logistics and you are a deep logistics expert. And so you step forward when that's the, the issue involved. But it's not because you have the CEO DNA, right? <laughs> which is the Bronze Age thing. You know, right. I'm in charge because I have been anointed by God to be at the top of the pyramid. You know, Bronze Age thinking, and it's still the norm at you know seventy percent of all companies. <laughs> Which is, and of course, at every tier in these companies, they are tiered because you know the Bronze Age requires tiering. You know, it's the era in which you know military societies grew, caste, you know, based classification of people, uh, and so on. And it's still in our cultures. It's you know. Why is it that businessmen today wear a suit when they go to the office, whereas all the creative people wear T-shirts and jeans? 
because it's ritual clothing that you're demonstrating that you're the officer class and then all the enlisted people wear cheaper clothes because they're likely to be, you know, cleaning garbage cans. And that's still built into our system. And, and if you don't come to work, you know, in a suit and a tie in certain industries, you're insulting the other people. It's considered an insult, which is like, what? <laughs> but, you know, that's, you know, that's Bronze Age thought. You know, you're not wearing the right clothes to be a courtier. So right. you, won't, you won't be treated as one. You're not playing the the finite game where the past is continually referenced and everyone's sacrifices for merit are being recognized in the little social architecture. Yeah, I think it's astonishing. Like yesterday, I didn't I didn't actually publish this or write it up in my uh, my newsletter or anything, but I might if I find the right right piece. But somebody wrote a story the other day. the the uh, The man's business suit is under attack. It's like. <laughs> You know, because more and more, you know, millennials, even if they have the job of being a manager, they're not wearing a business suit. They're coming to work in like athleisure clothing or whatever. <laughs> so do, do you think but, you know, this, is, this is 2018? My God, it's been a thousand years since, you know, the Bronze Age ended. <laughs> do you think do you think that this trend is leading us into at some unspecified future point a world where the demands of our just totally accelerated landscape have it so that this emergent leadership is appearing in areas like politics where we're not even we're you know it's like a fluid democracy where people are rising to the need and are being appointed for temporary positions and that we sort of lose career politicians. Cause this seems, this seems like we're at that point where we're starting, we're, we're probably not there yet as a species where we can say, okay, career politicians, we're done with you, but it's starting to become obvious that this is no longer sufficient. If you, if you make a contrast between, for example, the, the form of government we have in the United States, which is like the oldest continuous uh, government system in the world that hasn't gone through a revolution, Strangely enough, because we're like a <laughs> young nation, but uh, we, you know, we've had the same system of government since 1779 or whatever it was. If you contrast it with sort of parliamentary forms of government, uh, it is a trend in that direction. It's just we haven't taken the, whatever the next step is. So our system is it's based around checks and balances, right? There's different houses, but people are elected for a fixed period of time, right? And absent something like impeachment or the overthrow of the government, they serve out that complete term, even if everybody wants to get rid of the government, right? Uh, and there is no mechanism in our government to say, okay, stop, dissolve, you know, uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate and schedule new elections for <laughs> two weeks from now. You just don't do that in America because our system isn't based on that. Well, the parliamentary form is actually much more fluid. It's not as fluid as it might be. But, you know, the thing is set up so that, you know, you, you, in a parliamentary system, first of all, the parties in general are voted into power and they can move their, their people around. I mean, who's the prime minister? Who isn't? That can be changed depending on, the, you know, different kinds of parliamentary systems. But 
there's usually a, a, a mechanism where, you know, a vote of no confidence happens and these titular head of the state, who's, you know, usually ceremonial, will say, I'm calling for new elections. And then a new election happens. And uh, then there's new people in charge, or maybe not. Maybe it's the same people come back in charge. But it's much more flexible, right? And you can imagine something that could be even more flexible, where it, the overhead involved could be, you know, by moving to electronic forms of participation, you know, you could say, well, we'll have the election tomorrow, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, two weeks, not six months or whatever. And so you can imagine, yes, we could get to something that's much more fluid. I, I believe that it's likely we'll see more, more innovation of that sort in business. And then that will sort of leach out and influence politics after some new set of uh, principles are sort of proven or become adopted or accepted as sort of a given. But that could take a decade, you know, and, and the notion of having some you know, going through the current forms of how we would change the government in the United States, which would require, you know, the majority of the states of the union to agree to a reformulation, a new constitutional convention. I mean, it's, that ain't going to happen. Almost yeah. impossible <laughs> to imagine unless we had a revolution. Although yeah. we do, we, we have seen that, for example, increasingly in the United States, more and more things are decided by uh, things are taken directly to the, the uh, voting population as some kind of a, you know, resolution put on the ballot and it sort of runs around, you know, the legislature. So that's how, you know, we're getting all this legal marijuana stuff. Well, until Vermont, I guess, Vermont is the first one just yesterday where marijuana has been legalized by the legislature and not by, you know, popular referendum. Interesting. So, yeah. Go Vermont. Yay. So, you know, in looking at all this stuff, it sounds it seems like you've got this very complete picture of how things are moving, kind of where, you know, where we're going to be running with the bucket to catch it. What do you think is the one thing that you or or, or do you see anything, I should say, that no one else is giving what you think is like due attention to on the horizon like what's the thing that you think is going to just completely surprise and sideswipe all of us you think like the existential ai risk is sort of a red herring and it's really about you know learning to work with and that's that's going to take care of itself i think probably on some level a lot well, no, of i don't think so but but yeah. you know the, the things i think about that are not things that other people haven't talked about a lot so i believe we're going to have to have Ultimately, we're going to have to have regulations to minimize the rapidity with which we adopt AI and obliterate, you know, human work and get into a situation of mass joblessness. Because I, I just don't think that the economy, our social systems can adapt to that as fast as we can adapt to the technologies involved. And so, you know, uh, a company like Wendy's has every incentive to put in as much robotic gizmos into their chain of restaurants as possible because it's an enormous possible reduction in costs and headaches, right? Because they don't have people headaches. They don't have to, Betty called in sick today. Well, the AI doesn't do that, right? And in fact, all the news stories that you see, there was one today about Red Robin, I think it was, or Jack in the Box, who is following the lead of Wendy's and putting in kiosks and so on. So, each of those people, so it's a, you know, the classic thing, it's a, it's a tragedy of the commons. Each of those people are attempting to optimize the management of those companies are each trying to optimize their own 
ball of wax, their own business. And they don't really give a hoot of what happens if everybody else does it too, right? And that's not their job in a sense. They say, I'm beholden to the shareholders and you know my quarterly results and my bonus plan. Right. Um, and, uh, and I don't care, <laughs> right? Because they have an adversarial relationship with the employees anyway, right? So I think many other people are looking at that and saying, well, we have to have a glide path where we don't just like, you know, turn off the engines, let the plane crash. And so the, the technique is going to ultimately have to be regulated. So we're going to have to say, no, you can't do whatever it is and eliminate all trucking in the United States with human beings. <laughs> and actually, I, let me turn that around. I believe trucking is going to be the driving case that will lead to the acceptance of the need of regulation because we're going to have 1.7 million American truckers out of work by 2020 because trucking, long haul trucking on the highways is the first place that we're going to see a mass deployment of driverless vehicles. And uh, right now there's no checks and balances involved. It's just going to happen. And so what are you going to do with these people? And people say, well, we'll retrain them. But all the evidence shows that it's extremely difficult to retrain a lot of these people, many of whom don't necessarily have a college degree. They don't have a history of being educated, well-educated in the first place. And all the examples you can point at of retraining programs have been dismal failures. So that'll be the case for that. But that, well, what I'm rehashing right there is something that many other people have talked about. You know, Jennifer Senior, for example, did a great review of, of Amy Goldstein's book, Janesville, which was about what happened in Janesville when they shut down all the automotive plants, retraining just didn't do anything. So like I said, that's been hashed over. But there are some areas where I think, and again, it's um, because I'm a, you know, I'm a <laughs> deep generalist. Uh -huh. I think the, the biggest threats to our way of work and our politics is, you know, the rise of ecological migration mm. and the world is not ready for a hundred million or more people migrating out of central Africa, the middle West, uh, the West Asia and India from the continued heat and drought that is going to inevitably happen there. So this is driven by one key insight that I think as a futurist, I have been harping on, but most people don't get this, all right? Even people that are relatively knowledgeable about climate change, if we did everything we possibly could, if we went onto a war footing and spent every possible nickel that was we could to counter climate change, we still are going to have climate change. And it's going to take, with us doing everything we possibly can, it will take a thousand years for the heat levels to start falling again a thousand years if we do everything possible so as a result knowing this then you can when you start extrapolating what's going to happen on the earth and what are the big impacts and what are the big threats and how is the world going to respond to it and how will you know things like uh, the adoption of new technologies and so on have an impact that becomes a factor that is so powerfully distributed across the earth 
that it impacts everything. It becomes the dominant, one of the two or three dominant modalities, and it becomes number one on the list. And the other is the rise of AI, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that whole and that, the third, that 2045 the timeline. Collapse, so the third is the collapse of the you know, current neoliberal globalist model that you know is being widely it's no longer accepted as a given as you know a general norm and beneficial well that ties back that ties back into the the whole issue of the return of the human scale to the human operations and that this this uh that 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 20th century tension between as uh, historian william Irwin thompson talks about the 20th century tension between the globalist technocrat and the planetary mystic and that the planetary mystic has a cosmopolitan global identity but it's not that that person isn't actually trying to route input output and affect direct change cybernetically on that planet's scale so which one of them which one of them is on the winning side of history yeah well you have to start thinking about things at the watershed level yeah yeah so you have if you're going to think about it in terms of geography, the geography can't be just the one lines of nation states, you know, which are the remnants of old empires and, and other current kind of craziness. Um, it has to have some logical relationship to the actual world. And that's things like city states, watersheds, and so on. Um, and, that, you know, for example, when you have that mindset, you start to see through that lens, you say, well, you know, the desire of the Catalonian people to have their own state it seems like an inexorable direction, right? And the notion that the EU is resisting that and fighting it is like, well, <laughs> they're they're fighting, you know, they're fighting the the future. They're it's trying not. to put the smoke back in the cigarettes. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and of course you got Macron and and the guys in Germany are saying, yeah, we should create a more tight, larger European state. Meanwhile, everybody in the all the local elections are resisting that. Right, the rise of nationalism in the Eastern Europe, the Brexit, you know, the breakaway Republic of Catalonia, Northern Italy. There's there's a dozen places, Corsica. Um, anyway, so these things are running right. counter to each other, um, and it, of course that's also related to uh, you know other aspects of things. You know, the the notion that the dimension of left versus right might not be the right way to think about uh, the problems that beset us or the way we should organize our political systems to deal with the, the challenges we're confronted with maybe up versus down is a little better direction you mean in terms <laughs> of like more infrastructure more future oriented borrowing on things to build versus like we're going to regenerate scale down? no i was saying well, like in the occupy sense you know like the one percent versus the 99 aha uh-huh, yeah well, those lines have been drawn for sure. So- well, no, but the political the political structures are starting. I mean, that's why we're seeing the collapse of the traditional Republican Party now because, you know, disaffection with the world as it is. And uh, this is the same fracturing we see in the Democratic Party, like Bernie's folks versus Clinton. Clinton's the old, you know, the old identity politics, you know, left wing. And then Bernie's a populist, socialist and he's saying you know the rich are ripping us off and we have to have a revolution i mean listen to the guy so i mean 
we're, we're seeing that all over the world. And um, meanwhile, all of these things are happening and mutually reinforcing each other. And like I said, you're going to see, you know, the way I write things, for example, I, I, I would write a scenario of a truck driver at the point at which he loses his job. And here's the context of the world as it is in 2021, where he's one of the last actual guys who was driving a long haul truck and how he stepped into the job of just driving the truck from the warehouse to the highway. And then they taught, they taught him how to do that remotely using like drone controls. And then finally they take it away from him because they have an AI that does it better than him. And so I would write that scenario saying, this is what we're going to see in, in years. And here's, you know, why there was, you know, wild riots, you know, general strike in the United States, because all of a sudden you get 2 million people out of work. Well, yeah. over a relatively short period of time, like three years. There's so, a, that's, that's a very palpable scenario. I forget the name of the author, but somebody wrote a piece on that. That was in the project hieroglyph sci-fi compilation looking at, at, uh, terrorist attacks by truck drivers on driverless freight facilities you know yep. people that's like you know i'm i'm making a statement because i've lost sure. everything and you know, it's very believable it's yeah smashing the looms yeah exactly yeah in fact i'm working on one of these kind of scenarios right now for my book you know a working future and the scenario is about a woman who's going to a retraining center to be retrained like the sixth time in her 12 years of, of working and all these different jobs she's had. And, um, and so it'll, re, you know, her in the driverless vehicle going to the, to the retraining session and she's re, re recalling all the other retraining sessions she's been in and describing what happened in those industries that led to her getting retrained to be as such and such a uh, drone driver of a sex bot was one of her jobs. <laughs> <laughs> is one of her jo former jobs <laughs> that's yeah that's uh I well, had, I, but then it turns out that ai got to be better at that than human beings could, you know <laughs> do it with like joystick kind of controls and so she lost that job and got retrained you know doing something else and so um but i think the the science fiction scenario kind of approach is a better way to talk about some of these things than the kind of World Economic Forum model of talking about things as sort of sweeping big ideas and here's, you know, income, you know, taxation tables or whatever, you know, doing everything very abstractly. I think you have to really uh, make it more tangible and real to people to talk about it as stories because it has a huge, huge uh, human impact then. Yeah, again, again, that return from our inability to properly grasp these massive, you know, six million people died da, 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 versus, you know, looking at the face of that starving child. The story of the woman who had a job briefly as a drone driver. for her. <laughs> Well, I, I feel her pain. I feel, well, you know, the good thing is that she didn't actually feel the pain. That's the good part. Well, the six, the <laughs> six retrainings in twelve years does sound like my adult life. So, I just, but but you know, the silver lining that I hear through all of this is that you know, as we go through this tumbler, you know, as we adapt to this metamorphic landscape of of the you know the future work, that 
we are steering our own minds and our own lives into greater creativity, greater personal leadership skills, greater curiosity that like yeah, all, those of us who make it things, through are going to be way more interesting, creative, all, all fun of people. those things are possible, right? So all of those things will be achieved by some of us. Um, <laughs> I just think that it's conceivable that in the absence of other ex- extrinsic factors that, uh, you know, we're not seeing it right now, uh, you know, there's going to be a narrowing of opportunities for people, a dramatic one. And in fact, I believe, and I've written about this. In fact, I wrote about this for uh, Back Channel, which is now, I guess, part of Wired. It's an article called What Will Businesses Look Like in 2050? And I came up with sort of a grand scenario based on a bunch of these trends. And ultimately, because it was so far in the future, 2050, I really started by saying everything that we're doing today is going to come to a sort of a narrow tunnel. And after that, there's various alternatives. And that narrow tunnel is 2023, the human spring, where things <laughs> get so bad, you know, climate change is so bad, uh, the rise of AI is so bad, the growing inequality between the haves and the have-nots is increasing, the gap is increasing. And so there's a worldwide, you know, in, in the OECD com- countries, all the de- developed economies, there's sort of a worldwide movement, something like Me Too, like we're seeing with Me Too, where people saying, enough, we can't stand it anymore. We're going to have to do something about this. And, and then the question is, what happens? And so I came up with these sort of three alternatives, one that's nice, which is called Humania, where <laughs> the forces of you know the re- revolution sort of take control through actual democratic principles and institute new practices like minimizing AI and taxing the rich people, taxing wealth, not just income. But in two other scenarios, things go bad. Uh, one, the uh, the haves squelch everything and create basically dictatorship kind of controls unchecked AI, but they do in fact stop the climate disaster. That's good. That scenario, by the way, is called Neo-Feudalistan. <laughs> you know, because we start living a feudal lifestyle. And the last one is climate change uh, leads to an ecological collapse. And so that means that the future is kind of like the present with less people and lots, lots more dust. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it's just horrible. That's a horrible scenario. But um, the question is, it may not happen exactly like that, but it's clear that some of these things can't be put off forever. I mean, climate change can't be denied forever. I mean, we currently have know-nothing clowns running the U.S., but the rest of the world isn't doing that. But even so, you know, we hit a local maximum again on CO2 in the air in October, and 2017 was the hottest year on record again. So these things are very serious. And as a result, that's the context in which, for example, my, and this is maybe I have to, I have to go. I'm actually late for something, but this is the context in which we have to like consider the sort of microcosm of the future of work, because you can't talk about the future of work. If you're not talking about the future in general, 
And the future in general is not just, you know, more of what we have today, or it's certainly not what we had in 1970. Um, so you have to realize, and of course, most people do conceptually, but when they start focusing on something more narrowly bounded, like the future of work, and they think about, you know, future extrapolation of future trends and so on, but they don't think about how dramatically the outside world, that is things outside of the future of work, things outside of the workplace and the business, world of business, how deeply intertangled that all is. And that it's not, I mean, except for the purpose of like the universe of discourse, you can't really effectively consider the future, like what's work going to be like in 2025. Well, depends, <laughs> right? It, what, it depends on what these other, what happens with these other major factors. Are we going to have a, a collapse of the stock market again or not by 2025? And so it makes a huge difference. So the only effective futurists that you can have around today have to be deep generalists. They have to think about how everything influences everything else and accept the fact that this is a complex mess of interconnections that is imponderably connected and complex. And so you can't predict what actually is going to happen. You can only hypothesize various alternatives or, you know, uh, sort of alternative scenarios. Um, and that's why, in fact, I like to think about it as telling stories because you don't have to be right. The important <laughs> thing is the impact it has on the people that read it. Uh, You're trying to change their head so they can think a better about alternative worlds um, uh, and, develop a, a way to think critically about hypothetical futures. And that's all, you know, you can't get the right future. And actually, it's sort of interesting. When I work with companies, I say, look, you, the last thing you want to do is come away with a company's official future and make everyone sort of work around a strategic plan that's based on that. That's incredibly brittle. What you want to have is a world in which you can conjecture any number of hypothetical futures and you rehearse them in a sense so that when one of them starts to look like it's coming along or, you know, you can respond to it, you can react um, and not, in fact, ignore it because it doesn't line up with your company's official strategic plan. Um, that's, in fact, what my job as a futurist is to help people think, you know, systematically about futures, not the future. To help them diversify their portfolio. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and think, think differently think broader well listen man this has been great fun absolutely so thank you so much for helping us think about the futures really appreciate having you on the show all right and you can find me at stoboy.com perfect i'll send everybody your way have a great day all right. thanks. thanks again for listening i hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i did future fossils is part of the mind pod network along with third eye drops the astral hustle synchronicity podcast and an oodle of other fascinating programs i encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all and stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils but for now may your now be exquisite long and wonderful